message this morning covers from the end of Matthew chapter 26 and into the first part of Matthew chapter 27. And there's really uh, three distinct parts to it. And I'm actually going to read the scriptures uh, that apply to each part. So I'm only going to read the end of chapter 26 first and then Before I get to the next section, I'll read the next parts of the verses, and we'll just go that way this morning. So, starting with chapter 26, verse 69 of the book of Matthew. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant saw him, the girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for your account betrays you, for your accent, excuse me, betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. To to catch the fullness of this, we... Drop back to at least you know verse 58 where it says, And Peter was following after Jesus at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And along inside he sat with the guards to see the end. In other words, when Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and they were taken away, the disciples dispersed. They scattered. And if you put the Gospel of John together with this, you find the gospel, that John and Peter at a distance stayed behind but, but kind of caught up with what was going on. John was a, was a part of an extended family in relationship to the the, the people of the the Sanhedrin and, and leaders and Pharisees, and so he was easy, no problem for him to to go in, and and as a result, Peter kind of went in with him into the courtyard of Caiaphas and and and, his, and the place where they were conducting this going to going to conduct this trial, and it says, and he waited for the end. Uh, I don't know that, that you could put an exact understanding at this point for him what that meant, but he was clearly seeing things go a different way than what he had expected. Because when it was, you know, before this, uh, when Jesus uh, approached uh, Peter, and in, in, in fact, uh, at the point of the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, he looks at Peter and, 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 and the disciples, and it says in verse 30 of chapter 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's a, 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 a quote from Zechariah chapter 13. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then here's Peter coming into this. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And so he's looking at the other disciples and says, Even if they fall away from you, I won't. I will stand strong. Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, Jesus tells him, You will deny me three times. Peter says to Jesus, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So they clearly were not seeing, uh, you know, the end of things coming. And even at the arrest, they're confused. They're, 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 in a sense, almost, I think, waiting for Jesus to do something, to say something. I mean, Jesus had said that if I needed to, I could call down 70,000 angels or so, you know, 12 legions of angels. Uh, Maybe he had something in his plan. They were waiting. And so what the end here actually means is hard to discern. But it's clear that he was looking and still hoping for Jesus to do something. 
we understand that this was the idea of the disciples even at the point of the ascension after the resurrection. You've heard me say many times there from the book of Acts, it says, okay, Jesus, in chapter 1 it says, okay, Jesus, now are we going to go and take the, kick the Romans out? And Jesus says, no, you're going to go and wait and pray. And just wait for the Holy Spirit. And then it will come together. And they were obedient and that's exactly what they did. But then Jesus ascends in a in cloud and, and they watch him leave and then they're even told, okay, now go back and, and do what he said. They really were so steeped in what had become the traditional way to look at the Messiah that they couldn't still, even after being with him for three years, hearing his teachings for three years, couldn't put it together. What was lacking? The Holy Spirit bringing it all together in a way that they would be able to see. And that was yet to happen. It happens on the day of Pentecost, 40 days later. So, uh, it's, it's that picture 50 days later. And so that, that picture of, of, of Jesus uh, trying to tell them what's going on. And, and so Jesus had told Peter, you know, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's just got that attitude. No way is that going to happen. I know me. I wonder how many times I have thought that I know me and found out how little of me I knew. Uh, I think I hope that made sense. Uh, you know, when you get into the situation where you realize, I don't know, I don't understand, uh, I'm, I'm confused about what's going on around me in this, in this world. Lord, and even crying out, Lord, why? I don't understand. In chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke, uh, it also records this same thing uh, where Peter's denial is foretold. Uh, and I just want to read that because it, it, it clarifies some things. It adds to it a little bit. Uh, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you or demanded to sift you that he might sift you like wheat and I have prepared, I have prayed for you that your family, or your family, your faith may not fall. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you, that you, that you know me, that you deny three times that you know me. The thing I wanted to draw attention to was, Satan has requested. That's a really powerful picture. In order to take and sift, and the idea of sift, as the easiest one for me to understand that was an exp explanation, was the idea of a flour sifter. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with that today. I, I, you can get so many different kinds of flour, but... But the flour sifting, if you're doing some really fine baking, you've got to sift the flour, which means basically get it so that there's nothing left uneven in it. Really fine, smooth texture to the flour. And so you have a, a sifter that either goes back and forth or has a crank on it or different things that they work, but it brings, you put the flour at the top and it comes out the bottom extremely fine. Refined even further than it would be in any normal kind of mill. And that's what this idea of sifting is. Satan wants to sift you, Peter. Now, of course, Satan has a motivation. He wants to sift Peter and see if he can even get through. He's saying, you know, Satan comes from the position that he can find enough lumps that won't even get through the sifting. In other words, you won't survive the process. You'll not come out pure. You won't come out clean and smooth and fine and ready. He wants to sift you. But notice what Jesus says to him. But I've prayed for you. Meaning, Satan's going to get the permission to sift you. It's been given. But I've prayed for you. Satan can't come at us without permission. And that makes me frustrated sometimes because I'm thinking sometimes, God, why did you give him permission to do this? <laughs> But the other side is to trust in God's sovereignty that He has what? Prayed for me. 
Scripture tells us in Hebrews that He is the intercessor. He stands before the throne as our mediator constantly on our behalf. What an amazing thing to know the Savior, Creator, is our mediator between God's justice and wrath and our sins. And through our lives as we are sifted. And we will be sifted. We will all have experiences in our life that cause us to question our faith, question where Jesus and God is leading us. Uh, that picture of not knowing what the next step is. I don't know how many times you've been there, but sometimes you can't even see. It's like I think of the, the Thule fog that we, we experienced when we lived in Tulare, California, where you literally stuck your hand out like this and could not see your hand. You're driving down the road and you can't see anything. And then some semi goes past you like you, you're, you're non-existent almost, and you wonder, how, how, how did he not hit us, you know? And when you get out of your car, you realize if you look down, you can see all the way under the fog with your headlights going way down the road. You stand on the bumper of the car and you can see all the way and you see the clear sky. The, the driver in the semi was above all that. He could see the hood of my car, but I couldn't see a thing. And sometimes that's the way we feel. How come the world's passing me by? I'm confused. I don't know why. But God is there. And so in the midst of this, this, this picture of sifting, you know, Peter is, is, is a special part of, of God's plans. He says, I'm allowed Him to sift you, but I've prayed for you. I just love that. Well, indeed, the denial comes to pass. There's three parts to this. Verse 69, it says uh, he was outside sitting in the courtyard and, and it says that he was accused of being uh, uh, with, with Jesus. And uh, it says in verse 70, but he denied it before them, all, before them all, which means several people obviously heard this, saying, I do not know what you mean. So it was just a simple denial. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what you mean. The next one though, He's, it says, uh, as, as he was going out to the entrance, this means possibly trying to leave the courtyard at this point because he, he realizes that he's been discovered and, 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 uh, and he sees another servant girl and she said, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And by the very way this is put together, it means she's talking to other people and says, this man was with Jesus too. She wasn't saying it in a sense of, of wanting a response from, from uh, Peter as much as pointing him out. Look, here's, here's one of those guys. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And again, it says he denied it with an oath. With an oath here uh, means with a, a, a commitment. You know, uh, I, I, I deny it. I swear on my, and then whatever you want to put. You know, what we, you know, we have in our superstitious ways. I mean, people swear on, on family members' graves. They swear on family members' lives. They, they swear, and of course, at this time, to swear on their oath on the temple. You know, I swear by the temple. But what it was, was he was saying, I swear I didn't, I, by, and I'll just say, by the temple, I didn't do this. It's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. The third denial is even progresses past that. It says, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Now, the, the area of Palestine was just like the rest of, of, of any other area. You live in spe- specific geographical areas and you have an accent. I talked to my sister in Georgia, and I, I, after she's been there for a few years, I don't recognize her voice anymore, hardly. It's, it's just, it's a different, she puts emphasis in, on different syllables of words and, in just different ways. Okay, is she still my sister? Yes, is it, you know, she's the same person I've known all my life. But when she lived, you know, uh, in Germany, she lived there for two years, and, 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 and she, she, had a different way of speaking from that. Now, my sister's very chameleon-like. I mean, you know, so she fits right into those kinds of things. But I'm just saying, people come from different places, speak differently. Most of the Midwesterners can tell that you're from California. But how many of us can tell that somebody's from the, the, north, uh, the, nor- the Northeast? 
the, 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 from Maryland or, or from Maine and, and, the, and New, New Hampshire and places like that. Or just from New York. How many people, when you, when you talk to somebody, you get those solicitations. And, and, the, and, you've re, and, and they're calling from, from a southern state. Or an accent from a foreign country. Uh, you know, so, you know, we, we realize that, that this is true. And she says, your accent is Galilean. It gives you away. You're, you're a Galilean, so was Jesus. So you must be, you know, at least with him, meaning part of what's been going on here. And, and, and so he, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, it's important that you catch this, this idea of a curse on himself is basically saying, may something bad, whatever a curse could be that you could think of, may something bad happen to me if I'm lying. That's what he's saying. A lot of people get the idea that, there's, that, that, that this, these curses and oaths are something to do with foul language. You've got to understand where Peter is. He's, he, he's in, a, in, a, in a courtyard of, 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 of a religious place you know, even though it's the probably the the courtyard of of Caiaphas and and Annas, but but the idea is you wouldn't and, and around a situation like that, you, you wouldn't find him if he did use curse words using them there. But uh, the other part of it is, is simply that what he's saying is is that he's offered a curse on himself and again by an oath sworn that he doesn't know Jesus. What happens? The rooster crows. And he knows again now what happens. And he went out and wept bitterly. Within the framework of that, I want to go back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22 and just look at one other part of this because it's extremely important to this. I I encourage people, you know, uh, to... Try to get... there's There's a number of them out there. But they're books that put the Gospels together in chronological order. And so they'll have a few verses from Matthew, a few verses from John, and whatever. And the, the, one of the easiest ones to, to follow, but one of the hardest ones to find now, if you find one, by the way, in a used bookstore or online in a used bookstore, and it's under 10, under 10 or $20, it's worth the buy. Uh, and it's called The Gospel in Stereo, The Life of Christ in Stereo. And uh, it's, a, it's a great read in the sense of putting all the Gospels together. Because as we flip back and forth, we also get a full picture of, of, of this picture. When Peter denies Jesus, uh, I want to look at verses uh, 60 uh, in chapter 22, verses 60 and, and the next couple of verses. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went away, and he went out and wept bitterly. You've got to understand where he was. He was in the courtyard of, 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 of Caiaphas and Annas' place. Uh, they, they, he's, it's not, a, it's not like being in the courtyard of the temple and, and, and there's a proximity. He probably could catch glimpses of Jesus during this time. If not to see him more readily, uh, possibly almost all of the time. It, it was, it was so, that kind of a proximity. And as he says the denial the last time, he looks over where Jesus is. And Jesus makes eye contact. I don't know how that registers with you. Because I know how many times I've let the Lord down and come to Him in prayer and asked for forgiveness and how I've felt at certain times where I, I realized I blew it. But I've never really had this. in that sense, to be face to face with the one I just denied the third time. The one who I had told just hours before, I'll go to you to prison or I'll die with you if it's necessary. 
It's not me that's going to fall short. And now the only one that's saying anything against Christ in the way of the disciples outside of Judas is Peter. I am going to share something with you that I'm going to read from online, but it's just a kind of like a brief bio of, of Peter, and uh, so that you can see where, who he is and where he comes from. Uh, and you know, Simon Peter, also known as Cephas, according to John 1:42, was one of the first followers of Jesus Christ. He was an outspoken and ardent disciple, one of Jesus' closest friends, an apostle, and a pillar of the church. Galatians chapter 2.9 talks about him that way. Peter was enthusiastic, strong-willed, impulsive, and at times brash. But for all his strengths, Peter had several failings in his life. Still the Lord who chose him continued to mold him into exactly who he intended Peter to be. And as I read that paragraph, I realized, in other words, Peter's just like the rest of us. He's got positives, he's got negatives within the framework of his character, and God accepts us and is in the process of transforming us into the likeness of Christ. That's the, and that's what the sifting, by the way, is all about. Simon was originally from Bethsaida and lived in Capernaum, both cities on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. He was married according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, and he and James and John were partners in a profitable fishing business. Simon met Jesus through his brother Andrew, who had followed Jesus after hearing John the Baptist, uh, Baptist proclaim that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And I'll finish what he didn't put it. Who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew immediately went to find his brother to bring him to Jesus. Upon meeting Simon, Jesus gave him a new name, Cephas, Aramaic, or Peter, Greek, which means rock. John, uh, you know, John talks about that. And so later, Jesus officially called Peter to follow him, producing a miraculous catch of fish, which immediately, uh, you know, Peter left when Jesus said, come and follow me. A miraculous catch of fish, meaning they had been fishing. We, you know the story. They've been fishing. Nothing could be caught. It says, cast the net over here. Cast the net. Brought in a, a catch that was tearing their nets. A record catch. And then Jesus says, follow me. And they walked away. From one of the most profitable business days they probably had ever had. For the next three years, Peter lived as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, being a natural-born leader. Peter became the de facto spokesman for the twelve. Uh, more significantly, he was Peter. Uh, it was Peter who first confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the Living God, a truth which Jesus said was divinely revealed to him. And that was right after the Mount of Transfiguration situation that happened. Peter was part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, along with James and John. Only these three were present when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, and when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. Peter and John were given the special task of preparing the final Passover meal. In several instances, Peter showed himself to be impetuous to the point of rashness. For example, it was Peter who left the boat to walk on water. Now, understand that he said, if, if you're who, you know, it can happen. And he, but what happened to Peter when he walked on the water? Because he did walk on the water for a moment. What happened? He took his eyes off of Christ. Okay? And promptly took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. It was Peter who took Jesus aside to rebuke him for speaking of his death and was swiftly corrected by the Lord. It was Peter speaking of, uh, who suggested erecting three tabernacles to honor Moses, Elijah, and, 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 and Jesus. And it's Peter who fell in, uh, to the ground in fearful science at God's glory. It was Peter who drew his sword and attacked a servant of the high priest and was immediately told to put his weapon away. It was Peter who boasted that the world, uh, that he would never forsake the Lord, even if he, if everyone else did. And later, it was Peter who denied three times that he even knew Jesus. Through all of Peter's ups and downs, the Lord Jesus remained his loving Lord and faithful guide. Jesus reaffirmed Simon as Peter the rock in Matthew chapter 16, promising that he would be instrumental in establishing Jesus' church. 
After His resurrection, Jesus specifically named Peter as the one who needed to hear the good news. Uh, Jesus specifically named Peter as the one who needed to hear the good news. And repeating that miracle of the large catch of fish, Jesus made a special point of forgiving and restoring Peter and recommissioning him as an apostle. Okay, this is after the resurrection. And how many times did Jesus talk to him and confront him in the reference of, do you love me? Three times. I don't think that's coincidence. On the day of Pentecost, Peter was the main speaker to the crowd in Jerusalem, and the church began with an influx of about 3,000 new believers. Later, Peter healed a lame beggar and preached boldly before the Sanhedrin. What an amazing transformation. He wouldn't even be known in the crowd near the Sanhedrin and now preaches in Acts chapter 4 and 5 before the Sanhedrin. Even arrests and beatings and threats, Jesus promised that Peter would be a foundation and the building of the church was fulfilled. And, and Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He was present when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. And finally, he was summoned to home of the Roman centurion Cornelius who also believed and received the Holy Spirit. In this way, Peter unlocked three different worlds and opened the door of the church to Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. That didn't make him a unique person like some groups want to make him into, uh, but what it tells us is that God, you go from this point that we just discussed to all that he becomes. And I, I wanted to share that with you because of the picture that that. You don't know at what point, what time, as you follow after the Lord, that He's going to use you in a way you never expected. And how many lives your testimony might touch. And you might turn around and say, well, I've only led one or two people to the Lord. But you have no idea who that person, that person, that person. And, I, and it's like I tell people, we all go back to the upper room of the book of, of Acts in chapter 2. Every one of us goes back to that group of people in the sense of our faith and our foundation as to who we are. Because one of those people told somebody that told somebody that told somebody that finally got to us this time in our lives. We're all part of that. And how important it is that we continue to pass this on, even if, it's, even if we are timid in the sense that we're not evangelists, but when we have the opportunity to be ready to share. Now, the second part of this that I want to look at is, is, is uh, it starts in chapter 27, verse 3. And you'll, I'll, you'll understand why I skipped the other verses in a minute. Now we're looking at Judas. Now Judas had betrayed Jesus. We all under, we've gone through all of this over the sermons over the last few weeks in the garden to betray him how? With a kiss. Called him rabbi. Now, I used to think that was really something special, but I learned an, uh, a number of years ago uh, from uh, a study that I did that that was actually, compared to who Jesus is, was almost like an insult. Jesus is Lord. They were already acknowledging that within the group. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. And he comes up and says, hey, teacher. you got to understand, Judas is... is not, you know, you, just, you look and you say, why would he include him in this group? It says he knew from the beginning who he was. We'll look at it in a minute. Judas is here at this point, and it says, when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. 30 pieces of silver is like 30 days' wages. It's a sizable sum of money. And the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's extremely important that you hear that. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Because there is a connection to that tied to all that went on with the trial of Jesus and the things that should have happened that didn't happen, and the way things that did happen, happened. I hope that was easy. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, here's what the, the, the people of the council of the Sanhedrin said. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. 
And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. The end, as far as Judas is concerned. But now he's left the chief priest with a dilemma. I find it interesting. It says, taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took the counsel, so they took counsel. In other words, they met again. Uh, they took counsel and, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the piece of them, uh, the price of him on whom a piece uh, had been set, a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. It's actually from Zechariah chapter 11 as a prophecy. And somebody's saying, well, why Jeremiah? You've got to understand the, the, the way the Hebrew things are put together. You have the law, the, the, book of, uh, the books of Moses. You have what is generally called the, the, the Psalms, which includes not just for us, we look at it and say the Psalms, but that would include Proverbs and the Wisdom Literature, Ecclesiastes, this different part. And then the third part was the prophets, with Jeremiah being the first in, in, in their works to be the one that would look at it. So they, they had the book of the law, the book of the Psalms, and the book of Jeremiah. Within the framework of Jeremiah are all the prophetic books, which would include Zechariah. But again, this was a very specific prophecy from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. That there would be 30 pieces of silver and that it would be the purchase price of, of, of the one slain and that it would be thrown into the potter, through the potter. I think that's amazing. Such detail that we're talking about. If that was just one of if that was just one of few scriptures with that kind of detail, you would say, "Boy, there's a reason to look at this." But when you start to realize there's 360 plus details just in reference to Christ alone uh, coming out of the Old Testament, you look at this and, and and all of the details over and over. Read Psalm 22 and see that he's pierced and, and his side is pierced, uh, that he thirsts, and that there's soldiers gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross, and you realize this is amazing. Over and over and over. So in the midst of all of this, we see that prophecy is being fulfilled, which means, in spite of what we see happening and how ugly it is, and how we can't see how they could treat Christ like this, God is sovereign. And His plan is being unfolded. It's been being brought to realization. He says, I have sinned, Joshua does, betraying innocent blood. And then this indifferent response. So, basically, so, go take care of it yourself. In other words, you, you know, it was the implication by that is actually, if you think you can go talk to Pilate and, <laughs> and work this out, go for it. You know, this is, we're, we're, we're done. What's done is done. It's in Pilate's hands. Throws the pieces into the temple. By the way, the fact that he, he threw them into the temple means that it was only the priests that could retrieve the money. No one else could do it. So they actually had to touch the money, which was distasteful to them. Why? Because they called it what it was themselves. Blood money. It was used to bribe and bring about an arrest. And the question mark that comes with that is, as we've looked back, there, were, there weren't any credible witnesses. No, no testimony. Finally, they asked Jesus, are you the king? And he, and he went through. So, oh, now we can say blasphemy. By the way, they couldn't go to Pilate with blasphemy. That wasn't enough. Pilate would have just laughed and said, take care of it yourself. We see the transition when they went to Pilate. He calls himself a king. Oh, now that's sedition. Pilate was still slow to, to jump on it, but... You can see the position that they were doing. These men were deceitful, dishonest. 
bending their laws. And I'll show you how in just a little bit, uh, just a little bit uh, in detail. So he threw the money, he departs, he goes out and he hangs himself. There is great remorse here. He is grieved, he is saddened. But his response to it was to go out and to hang himself. Quick bio sketch of Judas. Judas Iscariot is typically remembered for one thing, his betrayal of Jesus. He was one of the twelve disciples who lived with and followed Jesus for three years. He witnessed Jesus' ministry, his teaching, and his miracles. He was the treasurer for the group and used his trusted position to steal from the resources. We get that out of the Gospel of John. I guess what I look at is this is that his is the only one that he's the only one that even had a quote unquote specific job within the framework. He was the treasurer. He's the one that held the purse. Judas was a common name in that era, and there are several other Judases mentioned in the New Testament. One of the other disciples was named Judas. Uh, we see that in John as well, and 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 so was one of Jesus's own half brothers. Uh, so. Judas is a common name, and you see from this point on how they, they differentiate. Judas so-and-so. Judas, so make sure you don't get him confused with Judas Iscariot. Scholars have several ideas about the derivation of the name. One is that Iscariot refers to Kerioth, a region of, or town of Judea. Another idea is that it refers to Sikari, which is a cadre of assassins among the Jewish rebels. Now, you know, I found that interesting. Uh, John MacArthur had a whole thing about that. The possible association with the Sakara allows for interesting speculation about Judas's motives for his betrayal. But it really comes down to it appears that money was his motivation. He liked having the purse. He liked to steal from it. And he used that. His thing about the woman with the oil and it could have bought a, 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 you know, all the food for the poor. And then it says he didn't care about the poor. He was used to, to pilfering the purse. And so he was a thief. And it just says, he was a thief. Judas left the priest with a, with a difficulty. What to do with this, as it's called, blood money? And they couldn't put it back in the treasury because it was blood money. Now, it's interesting. They took it from the treasury to buy off Judas, but they couldn't put it back. So they could take it for deceitful purposes, but they couldn't put it back if, if it was brought back. And especially, it was brought back with a sense of, you know, I, I, I condemned an innocent man. So they take it. They took counsel together. What do we do with it? Oh, well, we'll you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean the next day or that moment, but they, they, they bought a potter's field with it. Potter's field would be the, a, a field of clay. It was where they scraped the dirt. It was especially good for the clay. Maybe up a used-up field, which would have very little value to it. Uh, but they said they'll use it as a field to bury strangers. Strangers are Gentiles. Can't use blood money for anything that would be consecrated, which would be a Jewish burial. So they used it as a burial field to buy a burial field for Gentiles. It's called the field of blood. At the point that Matthew was writing, it was still called the field of blood. And again, I mentioned the prophecies fulfilled. The, it was out of the prophets, Jeremiah, the section of Jeremiah, which would include Zechariah, chapter 11. By the way, Zechariah wrote, oh, somewhere around 518, 520 B.C., 500 plus years before the occurrence of this. There's another prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 about the, the Messiah coming in and riding on a colt, even the, a foal of a colt. How specific was that? Very, very quickly, the two verses in chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders 
of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. You see, they didn't have the ability to put anybody to death. That was a Roman responsibility. The Romans had taken that from them to hold, actually, control. But it was the only people that service the death penalty was Rome. Now, interestingly enough, that didn't really apply to them. If they were really uh, in the mood, they, 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 they did, and they did it. Well, one time we already see they did it in Scripture. They killed Stephen. They didn't take him to Rome. Rome kind of turned back on that. They just didn't. That was a Jewish thing with a Jewish thing, and you know, with a with a if they'd killed a Roman person or or something, that'd be a different story. But you know, that's just their stuff. They kind of just turned it back on that. So theoretically, they could have. There was a reason they wanted him was found guilty by Pilate was to have him crucified, to have him hung on a tree, which was a disgrace according to the Old Testament. And they couldn't even do that themselves to somebody. But the Romans could. The day and the time of the, the trial is, is, is that it's speaking of here was to cover up what they had already done in the middle of the night. Two interesting things by sight of that. The Sanhedrin was not allowed to have a trial or for that matter, a meeting in this context for, for criminal situations and evaluation at night. And not only that, they weren't allowed to have a criminal investigation or trial during the the week of the feast. And so, the, in two ways, they're outside of their their thing. You'll recall they had thought about, oh, we better we'll wait until the feast is over because of the followers of Christ. But they also, because it was out of character, this was something they weren't supposed to do. But Judas presented in such a way they they jumped on it. And Jesus, in a very real way, at the point of the celebration of Passover, becomes the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God's hand is on this. I'd mentioned that they had false witnesses. Finally, they got two guys to to say, well, he's the guy that said he could tear down the temple and raise it up again in three days. Okay, Jesus, what about this? What do you say about yourself? You know, and, and basically, then they realize, no, you know, what, what, what? This is something that would be messianic or, or related to that, you know, thing. So, are you, are you the Son of God? And he actually tells them finally, yeah, I am. So, all of this time trying to find guys who would lie, they get Jesus to talk, and Jesus tells them the truth. And they convict him based on the truth of who he is. An irony, even in itself. Found him guilty because it wasn't the truth of the Sanhedrin. It was the truth, but not the truth of the Sanhedrin. They'd come up with what they decided the Messiah would be, and this didn't fit. Now, I want to just go one more thing here that's important to understand. Within the framework of the death penalty, the Sanhedrin had to be, you wait at least 24 hours to allow any unknown information to surface. Additional information of evidence uh, that, that might cause them to reconsider their verdict. Judas' statement, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, would have been more than sufficient evidence to wait. They'd already you know, turned him over to Pilate. 
They were so rushing this through. Why? Because they wanted to get it all done before what? Friday evening and Passover. Because we don't want to break the laws. So we'll break the laws here to break, so we don't break those laws. In other words, we'll bypass all of these things that have been part of our institutions for generations in order to not break this law. At least that's going to be our motivation and excuse to everybody. And again, their response to, to, to uh, Judas was, yeah, what's that to us? In other words, that's insignificant. Here's the guy that they used to, be, to, to lead them to Jesus to betray him. And he says, I see him as innocent. I'm the one that, 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 that betrayed him and now I'm confessing that I, I see him as innocent. And they said, what's that to us? And he realized in remorse what had happened and what was going on. I want to say this very clearly. And this is really what we're supposed to come down to. We look at, at, at Peter and his denials and Judas and his betrayal and we're saying both of them blew it. The difference is that Peter and the, and the context of him going away and, bitter, and weeping bitterly shows a sense of, 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 of brokenness. Kind of in, in, a, in, the, in the context of Psalm 51, kind of brokenness. Peter... He tries to, you know, or Judas, he goes and he, he, he just basically says, uh, he's an innocent man. I see this now. I've changed my mind. And the change my mind is tied to, more to the word remorse than it is to the sense of, of, of uh, repentance. He says, I've, I've had a change of, of feelings about this. But his result was to go out and to hang himself. It would appear from everything that we see that Judas had only one, one motivation to follow Jesus and that was whatever he could get out of it. When Jesus spoke of the, the things that were going to happen, the person that would do it was spoken of as, as, as a devil, as a person who would wish he'd never been born. Uh, and, and a number of other, uh, other pictures that, that would describe him. And, and finally, it comes to that point. I think that's where Judas was in remorse. Wished had never been born. By the way, if you go through the Gospel of Luke and, and, and look to it, and I don't have time this morning to get into that detail, but it says that Satan entered into him. Satan didn't only sift him, but at one point, Satan enters into him. It's the only place in Scripture where we have that picture of Satan entering into a person. I am confident that one who is is seen as a child of God cannot be entered into. There are others that will disagree with me and say that you can be possessed. I've, had, I've seen people who have had deliverance meetings and have had people, Christians, that have been Christians all their life come up and be delivered from hiccups and, and, and smoking and all sorts of other things. Uh, and and they, they would say, and I deliver you, I, they taking the credit, deliver you from the demon of smoking or the demon of this or the demon of that. I had somebody that wanted to send me to a, a, a deliverance meeting in, San, in, in uh, Sacramento the prominent uh, Pentecostal group that, and and I refused the gift of the tickets that would on the bus, and they said, "Oh, you just don't want to be healed." But there are certain things that you look at in the way it's done, and and and, and you, you realize how out of character it is. But Judas, all he wanted was what Judas could get, and he was a thief. He was a devil, it says, from the beginning, meaning that he was evil from the beginning. He had evil motivations, evil concerns. And at the very end, he was exactly what he was there to do. Some people will say, well, if God has manipulated this, then how can he be guilty? All I want to say to that this morning is that you've got to understand, we are responsible for how we act and react to different situations, period. We are responsible to whether we say yay or nay to the things of God, to the things of his word. We are responsible. 
The fact that, that, that outside of that, God has in His sovereignty has it all put together. He knows who is going to be in His kingdom and who's not. We are still responsible. And that makes every one of us accountable before the throne of God. In fact, it even says we're accountable for every word that we say. That is overwhelming to me. Because I do believe that that is believer as well. We're accountable for every word we say. We're going to see all the words that we use at one point to hurt and to, and to demean as well as to lift up. That's why, in fact, I believe in Ephesians it says, only use words that encourage and build up and, 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 and help one another. Be careful how you speak. But anyway, coming back to this. Peter, Judas, yeah, they both let Jesus down. But Peter's heart was one that shows itself from the beginning of their walk with Jesus that he was to be there and that Christ had every intention of use for him. His heart was open, moldable, and could be transformed. It appears that Judas never had that. In fact, we don't even find Jesus saying anything to Judas akin to what he says to Peter. In comparing the two, I, 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 was, I was reading this thing and was trying to compare them. And I, I just I thought, you know, there is no comparison. One has a malleable heart and the other one has a closed heart. That's the comparison. And so, with that, I, I bring this to a, a closing this morning is the reality that it's God who opens our heart and I think it's always an appropriate thing, especially before we go to communion, to ask God to do just that. Open our hearts to Your kingdom, to Your love, to Your purposes. So I'd ask the ushers to come and and pass out the communion. Hold it until we've all been served. We'll pray together and then share communion together.